Mark took the refuges and she was making this more, you know, affirming this to herself, develop this sense of refuge in Buddha or awakened conscious experience. Not in any views and opinions about what she might have or what others may, may have, but learning to, to recognize, value, treasure, the awareness that is possible at every moment right now for all of us. And then uh, to see the Dhamma, the truth of the way it is, the Sangha, uh, the, those who practice, who live in this way with awareness and wisdom. It all sounds so it does become inc- more and more clear and simple as you as you break down the illusions that we hold. I know in my own life, uh, even though I had insight quite early on, the force of habits were so strong. So, so, so I had all these habits, this self-centered uh, fears and desires. Uh, that would easily dominate my conscious experience, and so then, uh, and then, through meditation, I I would have insight into this. But then, uh, it's easy to to fall back into the old, the old uh, patterns of that one's accustomed to, <coughs> the habits of one's mind and body. And then you're living in a world where that is affirmed. The society we live in is one that firmly believes in uh, the reality of time and self, and and the uh, the allu- and that you know the ideals how things should be, and uh, comparing, uh, seeing what's wrong with everything because uh, because we it's not what it should be. Life isn't what it should be, but it is what it is. And that's where we, we're changing from that critical comparing mind, which is conditioned into us, uh, to the discerning wisdom, knowing the way it is. It's not knowing about, but knowing the reality of this moment. And that is an intuitive intelligence. It's not an acquired intelligence that you you get through uh, studying books or, or uh, just knowing theories, but it's through, through the insight, the direct knowing. So I've just returned from two weeks in Russia, which you're probably all curious about uh, because uh, well, how does the word Russia affect you? You know, <laughs> uh, because my, uh, I was brought up in the during the Second World War in the States, where uh, Russia or Soviet Union, as it was known then, was uh, was an ally. I remember going to movies as a child in, in the forties during the war with where the Russians were portrayed as, as the great heroes, you know, and where they were allies and best friends of the, of the Americans. And my father was also a very kind of left-wing type person, so he, he was quite interested, I think, in, in communism for a while. <laughs> so, so I had a very, very positive uh, uh, view of Communism, Soviet Union, Russia, up to 1945 when the war ended. And then suddenly, overnight, it was labeled the enemy. And I remember I was about 11 or 12 then, and being baffled by suddenly, you know, the, the war is over and your best friend becomes your worst enemy. And then the propaganda of the 
40s, late 40s and 50s were, were all very anti, you know. And during the 50s, during the McCarthy period, the early 50s, it was, uh, when I was in university, you know, it was, it was dangerous to say anything good about communism or even suggest there might be something we could learn from it. Uh, I remember as a first-year university student taking a course and making some, I was quite a, you know, like to say kind of uh, outrageous things, so I wrote an essay on the value of communism and uh, <laughs> and the teacher said, uh, please uh, don't do this again, you get into trouble. <laughs> this is the height of the McCarthy uh, Inquisition. But because uh, the propaganda, you could see how propaganda works. Uh, when you when you have an enemy, then you have to demonize them, make them horrible and cold-blooded reptilian monsters. And so uh, this is uh, just the way propaganda works. You, know, you have to hate your enemy. But by that age, 12 years old, I w had enough sense to recognize that it was... Uh, what was happening, and uh, you know, never was quite willing to to go along with the with the propaganda. So I always had a curiosity about Russia. I remember being quite interested in uh, in their literature. In university, we'd study Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Russian writers, Russian composers, <coughs> and then. Uh, uh, of course, it seemed like in those days, in the 50s, it seemed like uh, the whole, you know, even in the United States, there was this kind of feeling that that communism, Soviet communism, was like a, a creeping disease that was going to take over the world. And there was no way to stop it, except the duty of the Americans was to kind of slow it down as best you could. And uh, so it was you know, this sense of this, the great ideal of communism, uh, which, of course, was interpreted as, as uh, in, in a very negative way, uh, was uh, unstoppable. And so this is, this, is, this is how I saw it anyway, what I was picking up from the propaganda. And the, there was this sense of duty of stopping this, this spread of this disease or slowing it down and and I even had the impression that you couldn't really stop it. All the best you could do was slow it down. So then in the 50s, during the Korean War, uh, we were all draftable my age, you know. So I, I went into the, into the Navy, 1953. And that, and that, that was the intention of stopping the, the, the communists in, from North Korea, from taking over South Korea. And, and then, uh, of course, in Vietnam, the same thing, the idea of stopping the spread of communism. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, <laughs> it was quite, <laughs> quite an amazing thing how it imploded from within. And it's always, in, you know, when, when you've meditated and you've, you've seen the, the, the law of karma working, uh, this this is like cause and effect, and it's kind of basic in in Buddhist ways of thinking. If you do good, you receive good result. If you do bad, you receive a bad result. And uh, and so you know, oftentimes in the West, the word karma has all kinds of weird interpretations. But what it really means is cause and effect. It's quite logical that you can't get a good result through using a bad means. And yet one felt that, th that uh, everybody didn't really believe that, that you could use any bad means for a good end. And of course in, uh, in the Soviet Union, they had a, the end was quite idealistic. Communism is very idealistic, it's very fair, very, you know, it's taking how things should be where there's no class and no kind of 
prejudices, everybody's equal, wealth is even, there's no rich or poor, everything is, is just fair and just and proper and perfect. And to get to that end, what means would you use to, to move towards that ideal? And of course, in the Soviet Union, they used tyranny. And so you had, you, you, they used tyranny as a means to, uh, to eventually reach that, that goal of this uh, ideal utopian state, communism. And of course, what they ended up with, up with was tyranny. <laughs> if you use tyranny as a means, you get tyranny as a result. And uh, this is why in the present situation, political situation, isn't it, the, uh, the, the axis of evil in uh, the Al-Qaeda and the, the, the way uh, the West, the United States and Britain are, are always pointing to, to this as a, as a, we've got to wipe it out or destroy uh, the evil forces or the terrorists by using terrorism themselves. So what, what the result is you get just more increasing amount of terrorism because of that's the way karma works. <coughs> as we can see in our own experience in, uh, in our minds, you know, as you meditate, you see that if you use repressive means, violent means towards yourself, you end up feeling miserable. You know, so if trying to destroy evil thoughts and and suppress things and blame and, and all that, you end up feeling increasingly miserable uh, in your life as a, as a samana. Because the means are tyrannical. So you end up with a, with a, a tyranny as within yourself. So then, of course, the... the, the we begin to see that, that that doesn't work. If we're just trying to suppress, deny, resist, condemn uh, our feelings, our thoughts, or sens sensory experiences, or whatever, then we end up being miserable. So then the means that we use is, is the awareness, loving-kindness, metta, practice, morality, Sila, developing panya, this, this means, sila samadhi panya, is the means to, the, to, for, to receive the end, of liber which is the nibbana, or liberation. But actually, means and ends are the same thing. You know, when you, when you, when you trust in awareness, then you begin to see if a good thought brings a happy, uh, brings a good feeling. A negative thought makes, gives a negative feeling to the mind. If I just think of negative things and I feel negative about everything. And uh, if I think good thoughts, kind thoughts, happy thoughts, if, uh, makes me feel happy. But just on the level of thinking is not enough, is it? Just the positive thinking of I'm, everything is wonderful and all is well and, and I love everybody. It certainly, you know, when I really uh, affirm this over and over again, I do feel inspired and happy. But in terms of uh, emotional experience, then we, you know, one is oftentimes trying to suppress negative Emotions, fear and anger, uh, jealousy, through, through trying to um, think positively, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work just to, to try to uh, obsess your mind with positive thoughts when, when emotionally you're feeling upset, grief-stricken, uh, despair, anger, resentment. So with mindfulness, then this is uh, what the Buddha is, uh, is, as I said, the essence. That's the, that's the point of which is really the means and the end in itself. 
because with awareness you're you're uh, con- you're beginning you're recognizing uh, the ultimate reality, the unconditioned, the deathless. Your 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 place is that in being that the deathless awareness rather than the personality, the physical body that is subject to all kinds of of things you have very little control over. So in this is where the 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 awakened state is looking at the the ignorance or the conditions and seeing that just by attaching to conditions, identifying conditions through ignorance is the cause of suffering. So then that, you know, logically speaking, then, then it is the way of awareness, mindfulness, that we develop, that we cultivate. And that is now, here and now. It's not, a, not a tomorrow, but it's always this moment here and now that we, again, that we recognize, open to, rest in. So then going to, to Russia this time, it was because of the change, it's now very kind of, uh, you know, it's now a, a friend, or kind of a friend. And, uh, and so one easily can travel in, in, in Russia. And I was invited there, Sister Tidometa uh, at Chithurst, she's been uh, wanting me to go Russia for many years and so uh, I kept saying yes I really like to go which is true but but uh, I never really committed myself to any time and so I told her if you don't pin me down I'll, I'll keep procrastinating so she she pinned me down and we arranged <laughs> this, this time in in uh, in June And of course, going there was, uh, you know, the country that's a very interesting place, and uh, it, I also went with uh, Venerable Nyanadasano, who's who's also a Russian speaker. So I had two two Russian speakers with me, and um, I found uh, it's hard for me to even get the basic hello in Russian down properly. Some of the words are unbelievable, <laughs> but I did I did uh, memorize the Russian alphabet, you know, the, the, uh, so I could actually I w- living in in Russia for two weeks. I was beginning to re- read all the the signs on the shops and and so forth and pick up the uh, you know words through re- uh, reading them in the, the Russian script. And in Moscow, we we went, we flew to Moscow, uh, and Yanadasanov's uh, sister Tiramet was already there, and Yanadasanov uh, and I we we landed in Moscow airport, and we went. Our introduction was we had to go through immigration, so got off the plane, and followed the signs of immigration. There was this huge mass of people waiting uh, to go through immigration, huge kind of hall. Uh, without any, well, I couldn't detect any kind of cues or lines in it, just this mass of people trying to get through the immigration. And, and it was uh, quite hot that day, and, and with all these people, we, we waited two hours to get through the immigration. <laughs> and so that was, uh, you know, one uh, could complain about that, but my practice is to use the situation, so so I uh, I applied that, you know, just watching watching this this restlessness or the the tendency to get negative about it or to complain, and I didn't I didn't I didn't complain or or uh, I didn't make myself miserable, even though it was frustrating to to see you know this. And then it went very slowly, and then people kept pushing from behind, and and uh, you could see uh, 
see the certain emotions uh, forming in the mind. But once we got through, then, then we, uh, Sister Tidamate and, and, uh, and uh, one of her friends was waiting for us, and I think they'd almost given up, you know, thought we hadn't really come. And they took us to one of her friends who uh, is, uh, practices uh, kind of uh, like Qigong or some kind of martial arts in his wife. So we went to their flat. And so the first thing we did was have, uh, he, he was a practitioner of the Chinese tea ceremony. So he invited us into his flat and we, we sat down and he made uh, tea in this very ceremonial way. Not Japanese tea ceremony, this was Chinese tea ceremony. And actually it was very calming to come through all that and then get the first kind of introduction after the, after the immigration was this very pleasant calming tea ceremony. So I appreciated that and then we went to the, there's a Korean Zen center in Moscow and that's where we stayed. During the day, during the mornings, we'd, uh, they'd take me out to look at, at the sites, uh, Kremlin and, and uh, various uh, museums. Uh, and of course, Moscow is just full of interesting architecture and, and museums. And uh, just to see this, this very famous city and, and just notice the people. It's, it looked quite prosperous and people seemed quite quite well dressed you know fashion everybody was quite dressed up in modern fashion just like you'd see in London uh, the cars were a bit um, tacky <laughs> but other than that it, it seemed like a very normal place to be and uh, of course, the architecture, the, the Russian architecture, pre-Soviet architecture is quite sublime. There are churches, Russian Orthodox churches. And the Russian Orthodox church is, is uh, coming back uh, in a very strong way. And it's a bit scary, I think, because they, like people, the Russian people that, uh, that I met were all, you know, quite, uh, you know, skeptical about it because... Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia uh, doesn't, you know, it's not very tolerant of other religions. And, uh, you know, it, it, and there's this kind of nationalism taking place where if you're Russian, you should be Russian Orthodox, Christian. And so there's this, this kind of, it's coming back in a kind of very powerful way. And many of the churches that were, some were actually destroyed. There's one famous one uh, that was blown up in 1939 and they rebuilt the, this church, a huge basilica with a golden dome, very beautiful, and they've rebuilt the whole thing uh, in marble and in the floor, the inside it's all it's inlaid marble floors and murals and icons, it's crystal chandeliers, it's absolutely stunning to, to see and visually, very very beautiful, elegant. And the day we went to the Kremlin, uh, Lenin's tomb was closed, so I didn't get to look at Lenin, which broke my heart. <laughs> <laughs> that means I'll have to go back. And <laughs> but, um, in, in Red Square, they have that. Lenin's tomb, big kind of granite-like building with, and inside it, for some reason or other, the, it wasn't open. But uh, we went to, to also the Nicholas Rurik Museum. Which he was a Russian painter in the early part, or the early part of the previous century, 20th century, and he and as you know, in my kutia, I have George Sharp copied two of his paintings for me, uh, for my, my kutia. So they're kind of mystical paintings about 
the Himalayas mountains with with uh, gompas, Tibetan gompas and and yaks and llamas in them and things like this. So they're quite they're quite colourful and quite beautiful. And of course, as you know, I I really like the Himalayas and the and the kind of ambience that Nicholas Roeck was able to capture. I was able to see the originals in this in this museum. Every evening, people would gather in the Korean center, and uh, and and I would give a talk. We'd practice meditation and give a talk, and either Sister Tidametta or Yanandasano would uh, translate. And uh, this was. Uh, I could only speak one sentence and then they'd translate it. And uh, they did very well, I thought. Sister Tita Mehta had this kind of enthusiasm and she told me she'd, she was, uh, she'd listened to a lot of my tapes and practiced for, for quite a few months ahead of this event so that she could get a feeling for how to translate what I was saying into Russian. And I... I felt she she was doing very well. She had that kind of, because she is a kind of ebullient character. <laughs> she had this kind of enthusiasm for what I was teaching. And people were very receptive. And the kind of people that came were, I think, uh, like middle class uh, people, educated people. Uh, I think in, in the, many of them were therapists or they were into into uh, things like teaching or uh, nursing professions like that. So they, these people were, were what might be considered the middle class in modern Russia. But they do have quite a hard life because they, they don't have much money. It's, they're certainly, uh, you know, having a stressful life of having to, to try to make ends meet. And uh, life is not as easy to survive in there as it is here. But in spite of all that, they they were very very interested, very keen on meditation, very open to teaching, uh, and very generous with uh, you know with what they they had. And then we. Went, we spent a week in Moscow and then we went to St. Petersburg. I wanted to go by train uh, in the daytime. So it t- took eight hours from Moscow to St. Petersburg. And as you get further north, like St. Petersburg is, is on the same parallel as Stockholm and Oslo. So it's, um, you know, about where the Shetland Islands are. <laughs> and, you know, and and of course, when you get to St. Petersburg, there was hardly any night time. It was daylight, 20, nearly 24 hours. And uh, St. Petersburg, of course, is a very famous place because, like Moscow, was, is a very old place, very old city that grew from uh, like villages and then spread out and developed like London. But St. Petersburg was the... Uh, was was a thought in the mind of Peter the Great, and uh, this is a, in the 18th century. He decided he was going to build a, this new city, and he chose this place uh, in, that is now called Saint Petersburg. And it was just a marsh, bogs, uh, full of malaria, and and uh, most unlikely place to establish a city, but. But he did so, and uh, and of course it is extremely beautiful because it was planned according to an ideal, and so you have you know you have so many bridges there. I think they have like over 150 bridges in the city of Saint Petersburg, and then the the, the Winter Palace where the revolution took place, and all the different churches and and um, palaces and mansions and canals, beautiful uh, architecture that, that has been quite carefully restored, much of it. Uh, and St. Petersburg, of course, has, has, a, has a kind of elegant beauty to it. Uh, 
They also took us to to a garden uh, outside of St. Petersburg called the Peterhof, which was also Peter the Great's uh, idea. And it was, it was called the Summer Palace. And it's on the Baltic Sea. And uh, it's very, uh, very, very elegant. It has one of this uh, fountain called the biggest fountain in the, in the world with all these uh, golden figures uh, with water spouting forth, shooting up in the air. There some of them, there's the, the main one is Samson, this huge golden figure of Samson, uh, in the biblical Samson, uh, pulling this lion's mouth open, you know, killing this lion, and then water shooting up through the lion's mouth. <laughs> A bit corny, actually, <laughs> but the <laughs> but this was to to celebrate the victory uh, of Russia over Sweden. It sounds almost like modern day football, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess at that time they had, the Russians had a, had a battle with the Swedes and won. And of course, you know who the lion was, and and who Samson represent. And then uh, they had all kinds of other figures, uh, kind of Greek-like figures uh, uh, taken from Greek legends and male and female and different animals and so forth, all gilded in, in gold. And the palaces and the, and the churches uh, and, and beautifully landscaped. So it was, it was, uh, you know, a, a really feast for the eye, a very uh, kind of splendid attempt to to um, be one up on Versailles. And of course, uh, I, I've never been to Versailles, so I, but I've heard how beautiful it is. So I asked a Russian, one of the gentlemen that, that took me to the Peterhof, and I said. Uh, well, did Peter the Great, did, is it better than Versailles? And he said, no, not in any way. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a Russian that said that. <laughs> but it's still, in, no matter what uh, you think of it, it was still splendid, and this, this kind of splendor of this, this period, this Baroque period, where everything is incredibly ornate and uh, detailed and Great and artisans were brought in. Uh, we went in the, into the Winter Palace, and there they had a room, a huge reception room with uh, all with um, malachite pillars. And malachite is this, uh, you know, really beautiful dark green stone. It's uh, it has kind of a vibrant green with the kind of flowing designs in it. And I've never seen so much. Uh, Malachite in my life. There's the floor and the pillars and the tables and everything was was made out of this uh, this beautiful green stone. So it it was it was you know it's very impressive to see man-made things to see how you know the craftsmanship and and the the uh, the the kind of orn ornamentation and the elegance of, of that period of history. Because when you look at the Soviet period, it, it isn't so beautiful. Uh, it, they, they were not into, into that kind of elegance. So the Soviet buildings were, were usually, especially where the people lived, the apartment houses were really ugly, you know, huge, huge uh, complexes of big apartment buildings that go on and on for miles, uh, all looking pretty shabby. But St. Petersburg is also a great tourist uh, magnet, so there are a lot of tourists. It's worth going to, you know, it's such a, just to see this, this, uh, this work of art. <coughs> and there we we, uh, we st somebody, one of Sister Tita Mater's friends, uh, gave up her flat, so we stayed in this, this uh, person's flat where 
we each had a room to ourselves and then the people would come and bring dana and we'd uh, in the evening we'd assemble at this kindergarten uh, where one of the people that was in this group uh, worked he was in charge of it and there uh, we'd get about 50 people coming every evening for to meditate practice meditation listen to the dhamma So then we we had to return to Moscow to come back and uh, come back to England and eight more hours on the train. And there's not a great deal of things of interest to watch between Moscow and St. Petersburg, mainly pine trees. <laughs> and of course, once you've seen one pine tree, you've seen them all. But <laughs> uh, a few villages, and uh, but generally people uh, the Russian trains people are they're, they're quite good natured and and uh, when we first when we were going to Moscow we had seats Nana Dasno and I had were put in seats uh, that were where, where there's no window you couldn't look out because uh, we weren't by a window so Sister Tiedemann asked the two women in front of us whether there was a window if they wouldn't mind and they quite gladly gave up their seat so he and I could sit by the window. Things like this, the people seemed to be quite uh, good-natured that way. There, there was uh, a good feeling and, and I didn't feel like uh, any hostility. Uh, people, uh, you know, weren't, you know, obviously looked at me, what, 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 you know, what is this kind of looks, but I didn't detect any any hostility from them. And in fact, the Russian people that, that uh, came to the meetings were, you know, they were very respectful, very willing to learn. And uh, very kind of warm, warm-hearted. So I came away from, from Russia with a very good feeling, very pleasant, interesting time. And this is the, the advantage of, you know, like, like my contemplating my life as a Buddhist monk, you meet the best people, of course, like all yourselves, <laughs> the cream of the crop. And <laughs> even though you might, might think I'm being facetious, yet actually it's like, like you go to, wherever I go, I, I usually go because I'm invited by Buddhists. So wherever I go, I meet Buddhists. When I go to Italy, I'm with a Buddhist. Switzerland, I'm with the Buddhists. Australia, I'm with the Buddhists. As the United States, wherever I go, and in Russia, I'm with the Buddhists. So, to me, it's a Buddhist world. Because all I meet are Buddhists. And of course, people that are interested in Buddhism are, you know, they're, they're usually, in, this is a common, this is quite a, uh, a common interest uh, that that gives us, you know, uh, even in spite of the cultural differences, uh, ethnic differences, this interest in the Dhamma is the, is the reason why I'm there. So, you never feel particularly like a foreigner, or, you know, I never, I never feel like I'm like a tourist or a foreigner. I'm, wherever I go, I'm, I feel like I'm with people that, that we share the same aspiration, the same interest. And of course that is like, you know, like having good friends wherever, wherever, whatever country you're in. So this is one of the advantages of being a, a Buddhist uh, samana, <laughs> that you, you get a particularly pleasant way of looking and meeting people in this world that uh, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be so easy to to have if I were just a, an ordinary tourist. Now, when I was a tourist, before I became a monk, usually, you know, it was different. You, you, you would be going to the tourist spots and you, you know, you wouldn't know who to trust and then people would think, you know, they want your money or they, you, you have to be careful, you have, you can be suspicious or 
paranoid about things. But as a Buddhist monk, it, it wasn't like that, isn't it? It's like in Thailand. When I became a Buddhist monk, it just seemed to, the doors opened wide and, the, and uh, the, all the generosity started coming towards me. Everybody, you know, seemed to want me to be a monk and want to support, help me and encourage me. I felt everybody wanted me to be enlightened. I thought everybody in Thailand wanted the very best thing for me that you could ever want for anyone is to be enlightened. You're a foreigner, an American, you know, comes in, nobody really knows me very well, a big clumsy American, and then they, they want me to be enlightened. Thought, That's better than my own mother and father. My mother and father wa don't want me to be enlightened. <laughs> they want me to get married and have children. <laughs> <laughs> also going to you know I felt in some ways uh, some ways that I could feel a kind of defensiveness from the Russians like, like you know like they're a bit they, they're expecting me to to find fault or to criticize uh, because there's things you see that you know you could easily criticize if, if you were into that mode but I told them I you know I came to Russia to as a to bless Russia not to criticize it my presence in Russia was for you know for appreciation for blessing for goodness not to I wasn't there to to uh, find fault with it or to dwell on things that I didn't particularly like about it. So this is, of course, because I have this attitude, then, then I don't tend to make a big thing about the, uh, the difficulties that arise or any uh, things that I see that, that might irritate me. I w you know, you hear on the news about all the the, these uh, street children and whatnot, and I was expecting they took me into the London, into the Moscow metro. It's called a metro there, the underground, and it's it's uh, absolutely beautiful. It's all kind of marble, inlaid marble with huge monuments and crystal chandeliers and things. Not anything like the London underground. <laughs> 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 it's palatial and. Uh, and that was, I, I'd heard about it, and, and I was always expecting, you know, before I expected the Moscow underground to be a bit tatty, you know, but it wasn't. It was uh, extremely well-lit and well-designed. But I didn't see any, any signs, of, you know, I was looking for the kind of orphans, you know, trying to, pick my pocket, but I didn't experience anything like that. And uh, the older generation, you see, uh, the worst things I saw were like, like older women who were forced into begging in the, in, the, in the metro and whatnot. But, uh, but then you see th that in, in London, you know, homeless people, street people, It's also, Buddhism is uh, one of the accepted religions in Russia because uh, like uh, the, the three religions they accept are Russian Orthodox, uh, Islam, because there's a lot of Muslims in, in Russia, and, and Buddhism of the Buryatia style, which is in Siberia. And it's uh, Buryatia Buddhism is Mahayana Buddhism very much that follow the Dalai Lama. And they have a big temple. There was a temple built in, in I think it was built in 1907 in St. Petersburg. And it's a kind of Tibetan style gumpar, quite elegant building that was uh, taken over by the, uh, under Stalin and uh, was uh, and uh, I think the 
monks were killed and uh, in the 30s and then it was used as a as a radio station and it was also used as uh, for biological experiments and and when the Soviet Union collapsed then the government returned it to the Buddhists and it's interesting to see that that was never uh, during the the war that was never bombed the building is still there it's in it's in rather bad shape actually but the the monks living there the Buryati monks are uh, repairing it bringing it back to its original splendor so there's this this I think it's the first Buddhist temple ever built in Europe There seems to be some contention around this temple, and uh, so the various stories, and and seems that uh, there was some kind of clash around different Buddhists living in Saint Petersburg, and but the government, uh, I guess, uh, finally assigned it back to the Buryat uh, monks. So the the head monk there took us on a tour of the place, and and. Uh, it's a very interesting building, and uh, you know, with, uh, w- with you could still see the original uh, colors in the in the main part of the temple, but it's all rather, uh, you know, through leaks uh, and so forth, in in a state of disrepair. Uh, that is, uh, they're doing their best to to bring it back to. Uh, full uh, to its full splendor but religion also is uh, as uh, Russian Orthodox Church is very seems to have a very narrow way of looking at other religions and this idea of if you're Russian you you should be Russian Orthodox and this kind of nationalism is a bit scary I know they they wouldn't allow the Pope to go visit the Patriarch in Moscow. When the Pope wanted to go visit Russia, he wouldn't wouldn't let him in the country. Catholics are not very welcome there. Uh, the Buddhists, uh, the Buryati Buddhists, uh, they're they're already accepted. But I, one isn't quite sure how they how they uh, those of other Buddhist uh, groups might be received. But there isn't that much knowledge about Buddhism to discriminate. And the Buryati monks were certainly welcoming and interested. I also met a Thai monk in St. Petersburg who met me at the train when we arrived. And he's, uh, he's just finished his PhD at University of St. Petersburg. And he's only 33 years old. He's been there eight years. He speaks fluent Russian and English. And he, uh, he's uh, the great nephew um, Tanjakun Panyananda. He's from Patalum. And he's the only, only Theravadan Buddhist monk in, uh, in St. Petersburg, or probably in Russia at the time, other than myself and Yanadasano. And he took a lot of interest. Uh, he has a, f- a small following of friends that would come to the evening uh, meditation. But it, he was quite impressive because he's very devoted to uh, Buddha Dasa of Watsu and Mok in Suratani in southern Thailand. And so he, he eventually wants to go back and, and uh, live at Suan Mok. But he's also uh, had plans to try to establish something in, in St. Petersburg itself because of the interest uh, in uh, Theravada Buddhism and Buddhist meditation. But he said it is very difficult to get permission from the government. He's applied several times, but uh, they're not very forthcoming in, uh, about you know, uh, actually giving permission to establish anything. Now, there seems to be problems around you know, establishing. I don't think they mind just somebody coming in and giving a few talks and leaving. But how, how it would be if one had to live there, I'm not sure. Religion now is uh, 
you can see is is uh, a great interesting subject everywhere because uh, the religious questions are coming back into consciousness. It's no longer just political uh, dismissal of religion as some kind of uh, arch archaic form that's only good for the museum, but uh, it's interesting to see how quickly the Russian Orthodox Church has come back full bloom into, into Russia and, and into a very powerful position. It's like with Islam and, and in uh, the United States, the, the amount of uh, like born-again Christians, they say 40% of the population think of themselves as born-again Christians or evangelicals. There's this very kind of uh, rigid form of Protestant Christianity in the United States. So, you know, it's interesting to contemplate the religion, how, you know, how it, how the grasping of a religious convention is blinding. Because, you know, you, if you believe in the convention itself, then it, uh, it binds you to, to, to another sankhara. So you, you then see other uh, forms, uh, different forms of religion as, as the enemy, as a threat, or as heretical, or blasphemers. Uh, in the world, in the Islamic world, isn't it? There's different, the Sunnis and the Shias and, and uh, the Sufis and people like this. There's, 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 because of the different ways they approach, uh, or read the scriptures, or whatever, uh, then, because they bind themselves to the to the convention, they they see anything outside that convention as as wrong, and this is this is the the problem with avicca or ignorance. You you lose perspective when you attach when you uh, attach to anything, even a good thing, out of ignorance, and so it's. Uh, in the Buddhist world, also, you can, one can be very sectarian-minded and, and form strong views uh, around, you know, one's own technique, even. Even in Theravada, you can have the, those that practice the Goenka technique and those the Mahasi Thayadaw technique and those the Amravati technique. And, and we can all, you know, quarrel about just technique if we want to, because we're grasping a technique is another conventional form, isn't it? So this is where the, the um, emphasis on mindfulness is, is, so, uh, is so brilliant uh, and exact, because that awareness allows us to, to recognize attachment, upadana, dana upadana, as we recited the the teacher Samupada dependent origination previously. This, uh, this awareness allows us to see even the attachment we have to our own form or our own way of doing things. So this, this attachment is the problem. It's not the form of the convention. And it's not like you have to get rid of the convention. But the convention is f is for awareness, not for attachment. So, like what I was saying about the eight precepts, the Anagarika precepts, they, they're for awareness, not for attachment. Attached to them in order to learn them and to to get to know them. You know, so that you, you know it's not, but to so that you you actually understand what you're doing and how to use it. But but that form of attachment isn't from ignorance, it's, it's uh, necessity in order to learn something you have to, to concentrate on it and learn it. Like with Vinaya, you have to attach to it in order to learn it and, and understand it in order to develop awareness with it. <coughs> but as an end in itself, as a something to just attach to blindly and identify with it, it then of course it, it, it uh, just the result of years of, of strict vinya can be quite disappointing because it, it's not liberating because if one is attached to it 
identified with it. At this time, it, it seems uh, so urgent, this, this, this teaching of the Buddha, because it is addressing the problem very directly, the problem of, of everyone, you know, of, of this blindness, uh, political blindness, attachment to views about politics or, or economics or uh, race or religion. Uh, all these, these come out of this, uh, you know, identity, attachment out of ignorance. Then there's always going to be friction and quarreling and war because that's the way it is. If if one is attached to, you know, if, if one is identified with a convention or with a sankara, then any any other sankara becomes a threat. If it's different, if it doesn't kind of fit into this, to my sankara, then it's then it's the enemy. It's the axis of evil. <laughs> uh, and then the the logic from that is to destroy it. You know, to kill, kill the pests, eradicate. Uh, purify through genocide, through annihilation. Because that's based on this dualistic way of thinking. Uh, you know, which thought is dualistic. It's a dualistic convention that we, you know, that we have. And how to use thought so we're not bound to thinking, not identified and blinded by our own thought. So that is the only way to get beyond thinking is through awareness of it. So uh, it, it it was uh, a very full time as uh, to be the center of uh, attention for two weeks, where uh, you know you're everybody is uh, you're with people all the time. And uh, going places, uh, I was quite glad to get back here. And all I wanted to do, I was looking forward to just disappearing in my kuti, which you notice that's exactly what I did. <laughs> I didn't didn't step outside my kuti till yesterday, briefly. <laughs> so it was uh, very nice just to to hide away and. Uh, uh, in 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 that kuti and uh, and uh, just uh, relax and and be mindful and and uh, because when you're with with people all the time and and then there's all this 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 interest directed at you and and uh, and there's so many interesting things to see and it's such an interesting place. You know, you find you're, you you get quite. It really has a powerful effect on your consciousness. So it's uh, it was very kind of pleasant few days of just not having that kind of impingement. So I appreciate uh, your kind consideration during that time that I could uh, hide away so nicely. And Ropanyasaro brought me my food every day. <laughs> and uh, then I had, could just rest. So it's uh, getting on to uh, this month. The end of this month is the 1st of August, I think we enter the, the Vasa. And uh, this is a time where everybody's coming and going, um, getting their last-minute tudongs in and uh, <laughs> doing various things because of the commitment to the three months of Asa. And then the, the uh, event at Chithurst on the 18th, the celebration, 25th, 25 years at Chithurst, plus the opening, official opening of the Dhamma Hall, and uh, in my birthday on the 27th, 70 years. And uh, Ajahn Virdamo will be coming, arriving on the 12th in, uh, in England. 
and so that'll be good. He hasn't been here for five years. It's been five years. Uh, so it'll be good to see him. And uh, so it's quite a quite a good time uh, to renew old friendships and to enjoy each other's company and all these auspicious events. So I'll stop here and uh, that's enough for this evening.